Would you open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3? And if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, I think it's page 659, I think. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. That's how I remember it. All right. To Nineveh. When I was in pilot training, you would train, 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 and then you would have a check ride. And check rides are the worst possible thing in a person's life, practically. They're just, they were all anxiety, and, and you were being evaluated from head to toe. You're tested and questioned, and, and then you would go fly. And, and a check ride would show up at the completion of any phase of training. So from I'm learning how to get in the airplane and fly it and do a loop, that would be a phase, and I'm learning to fly formation as a phase. Instruments, low-level, navigation, all of those things were phases that were evaluated. And like I said, they were very, very high-stress uh, days. And your check pilot wasn't your friend. He didn't talk to you. He didn't want to know about your life. Uh, he didn't even live in the same building. They it was almost like they enjoyed the pain. They put them in a different building, and we would have these clipboards, these binders, with their names and all this, everything everybody's learned over the years about them. You know, like, Major So-and-so, if he really likes Swedish fish. So if you got a check ride, you know, maybe if he's Swedish fish scattered here and there... This guy, he always asked this question, and this guy, I mean, we had these books of lore about these kind of grim reapers in, in the other building, and they would come, and they'd sit in the airplane, and they would not instruct, and that's not their goal. The day of instruction is over. This is the day of evaluation. So they would be completely quiet, and you would do your thing, whatever that was, and... Uh, sometimes they would say something like this. Imagine you just did a loop, but instead of like going up and about and coming out, you somehow ended up going that way, right? They might say, I'd like to see that again. Now those words are life-giving words. Because you realize if he says that, you have not busted that check ride yet. The fact that he's allowing you to do it again suggests that the check pilot believes it's in you to do a loop. And he wants just to give you one more chance to prove yourself. Okay, he's not letting the standards go down. He's thinking maybe something happened. Maybe you sneezed at the top of the loop. Maybe, whatever. He thinks if you could just do it again, you could display that you know how to do it. It's a very merciful statement. The, what you don't want to have happen is the, instruct, the evaluator take the airplane. I got the airplane. That, you know, you've just you've busted and you're a loser and you're, you, everything's the worst thing about you. If they take the airplane and they fly home, you know, you can just sit behind your little black visor and boo-hoo all you want because you're done, right? But if he gives you and says, why don't you do this one more time? There's hope in that, okay? 
Look at the first two verses of the third chapter. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You hear that? Saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. He gets a second chance. I mean, it's almost, if you got rid of the phrase the second time, you might as well could just start the book of Jonah right there. I mean, it's chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, or 1 through 3, just three chapters later. Jonah is getting another chance to demonstrate obedience to the Lord. Very same, very same command, very same expectation. He's just getting another chance to do it again. And I I think this suggests two things. The first is that it does not appear that God has chosen to compromise his expectation for Jonah based upon Jonah's spiritual immaturity. Doesn't seem like God decided to do that. You know, while Jonah's in the belly of the whale praying, it's, you don't get the impression that the Lord is having a triune conversation in heaven going, maybe we asked a little too much of him. What do you think? I know. I know he doesn't like the Assyrians. What if when we burp him out, we just, we ask for a little bit, like be a little bit more reasonable with him this time. You don't get that impression. He's vomited on the shore and the Lord says exactly the same thing to him. In other words, the Lord doesn't see Jonah's spiritual failure and recalibrate God's plan for his life based upon his immaturity. Uh, be clear, I mean, God patiently fetched Jonah, okay? So God is aware and displays grace to his immaturity and to his weakness. God sought him out and took him and plunged him into the deep and worked with him, right? I mean, God, Jonah's been doing a little bit of thinking over the past three days. I mean, he's a, maybe a different man, you might imagine, in some ways, coming out onto the shore now, but God did not... There's not a second track for the weak Christian to run on, so to speak here. That's what I'm trying to say. Jonah doesn't land on the shore, and the Lord says to him, you know, I was talking about it with the Holy Spirit and the Son, and we think you should just try to go to Damascus, you know, baby steps. Damascus. And instead of saying 40 days before the city is overthrown, how about... Say something like, God loves you, and he has a plan for your life. Or, Jonah, we know maybe we asked a little too much of you. How about you go back to Jerusalem and you pray for Nineveh? Can you just pray for Nineveh? Doesn't do that. Same message. Do it again. Now, to be clear... I'm not suggesting, God makes different kinds of people, all sorts of people in different ways, calls us to different sorts of things. 
this is, this nothing in me is saying, this is why God wants you to go to Nineveh or to ISIS-controlled territory or anything like that. I mean, the Lord might choose to do that to some people some of the time, but by and large, the Bible's written in the midst of masses of people who are pursuing the Lord in their towns, villages, families, and amongst their friends. Okay? So I have every reason to expect that that's continues to be the general way that the Lord works. What I'm saying is, I'm not saying that God has some great call for you that you haven't heard. I'm simply saying that God is not going to observe mediocre faith and adjust. He will be patient, but he will not adjust his standard. God's not content. You know, the, our Lord Jesus Christ said, if you want to come after him, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Okay? That's not for the good Christians. That's for everyone. We can't raise our hand and say, well, what if we want to indulge ourselves and take up our remote? What then? Right? And the Lord doesn't go, well, hey, I got a different brochure. In that case, how about you just pray for Nineveh? You know, when you think to. Or let's just renegotiate the contract because I know this, is, this idea of really following the Lord is just whew, a little much. This is my question. Are you living a life assuming that God is going to renegotiate the idea of what it means to follow just for you? I have nothing in me thinks you need to go somewhere or do some fancy thing. I just want to know. I just want you to see there's a gentleman in this book who is weak in spirit and immature in his faith and disobedient in his actions, and the Lord finds him, grabs him, and says, do it again. Same thing. God seeks to make one kind of follower, a faithful follower. That's what he's trying to do. So I think that's present here, this idea, this reality of Jonah popping out and get, hey, same charge, Jonah. There's something else that I see here or that I don't see here that catches me a little bit, which is the Lord doesn't seem to uh, remind Jonah of his failure. Not a lot of words here about all of Jonah's failure. There's no guilt trip. There's no name calling. There's no kind of razzing or trash talking. God doesn't say, all right, Jonah, we're going to give you one more try to see if you're not such a lame follower as you were earlier because I know how you people are. It's always this. You don't get this. God is a, is a gentleman. If such a thing can be said, go do it again. It's as though it didn't even happen. I mean, Jonah's disobedience didn't even happen. God just says it. This is my will, Jonah. And we are blessed with a wonderful God who does not rub our face into yesterday. God has 
your tomorrow in mind. Actually, what God has is his great tomorrow in mind, and he's trying to call you into it. That's what's in his mind. It's not to make you ashamed of yesterday. That's the work of the enemy. God, it's not. God fetches you out, sets you on dry land, and points you in the right direction and says, this is still what I want you to do. This whole this week, I've been so impressed in my own heart of how you know, almost as the Lord saying, you should be that way. You should be like me there, more like me. I thought, how do I, how do we... Uh, rub other people's faces in yesterday. You know, I think specifically with children, man, I am bad at that. Love to remind them of their inadequacy yesterday. You always do this. God doesn't do that to me. Why do I do that to them? Spouses, this is like a weapon of warfare in the marriage. Friendships, God would not have us be that way. God would have us. God would that our hearts, for whether it's our children or our spouses or our friends, that our hearts would be for their best today and tomorrow, not to remind them of their failure yesterday. It's, it's a great second chance, right? There's always hope when the Lord says, try it again. Okay, let me read the rest of the narrative, the rest of the chapter. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. But by the way, I want you to hear just the beauty of, I mean, this book is a work of literary art. It's just magnificent. And just, I want you to, with your mind's eye, picture what, just, what he just said about the king. He arrives from his throne, removes his robe, put on sackcloth, sits in ashes. Do you see the flow? From one seat to another? Really? I mean, what a, what a beautiful way to show the change of a person's disposition. Verse 7. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them go out mightily to call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I want to clarify the image a little bit. Again, um, this, this book, this story is very concise. 
So the arrangements of words and thoughts are carrying more weight than maybe normal narrative is. So here's the basic picture without getting trapped in the details. The picture is painted of Nineveh being a, a vast and great city. It says exceedingly great in, in the ESV. The actual Hebrew is it's a great city to God. A great city in the eyes of God is the suggestion. It's a God-sized city is, is the implication. So you have Jonah going into this, this city. It's a three-day city, and Jonah enters into it, and he's a day into a three-day city. That's it. I don't know exactly what that means, but that's about the idea. I think it's, it's consistent with the heart of the teaching that Jonah kind of enters into the midst of this colossal city, the city that certainly is large to him, and he, he calls out this word of judgment 40 days before Nineveh is overthrown. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that Jonah did signs or wonders. It doesn't say anything about fire coming from the sky to validate the power of Jonah. It doesn't say anything about Jonah getting certain kind of audiences with key people, movers and shakers or the influential. You don't hear any of that. You don't get the sense that Jonah had any certain wise-sounding arguments that toppled their false thinking as though he went in loaded with all these apologetics books. No. I mean, the, the teller, the author of the story, wants you to feel the vastness of the city and the smallness of Jonah. I mean, even, even the message of Jonah is small. And if you've, you know, I hope you've read the whole book by this point. Man, it's so easy to read it. You can do that. You're allowed. Certainly you've been bored some point over the last three weeks and you just finished it up, right? But if you read on in the fourth chapter and you knew Jonah's heart, it's hard to even imagine the exclamation point at the end of three, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. I almost imagine him going into the heart of the city and being standing on a corner and being like, 40 days and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. <laughs> and, then be, and somebody being like, what is it you just said? And he goes, oh, I said 40 days and Nineveh's going to be overthrown, but you know, maybe you have other things to do. What? This guy? I mean, it's almost as though he can hardly be less consequential. And yet the city explodes into near total repentance from the greatest to the least, man and beast. That's the compass we're given. Jonah didn't even go talk to the king. Word reached the king. It went viral. That's what happened. Pre-Facebook, viral. It's, it really is amazing what happened. And it raises a few questions, which I don't have great answers for, but there are some ways to think about them. The first one that comes to my mind is, how did this simple message trigger wholesale repentance? I mean, how did that happen? Now, I don't know, okay? So, I don't know. I, I, there's no answer coming. Some think there could have been other signs and wonders that had already taken place that had prepped Nineveh. Like in their own pagan culture, in their own superstition, God might have used that, just like, you know, the wise men from the east followed a star. God might have 
used famine or solar eclipse. Both of those things happened in this period of time in this area. They might have used those things so that the people were already superstitiously predisposed. So the last thing that needs to happen is a man gets burped out of a fish, shows up in your town and says this. And I mean, you've been warmed up for this, right? It might be that Jonah is the last chapter of their call to repentance, not the first chapter. I don't know that. Maybe the Lord had other messengers go. I mean, could he really have relied entirely on Jonah for this? Maybe. I don't know. But what if there were a bunch of prophets that had been going in? Maybe God spoke to people in dreams. These, God has done all of these things. Maybe God sent an angel. God has done all these things in various measures and forms, continues to do them to this day. I don't know what it is. This is what's important to appreciate. From Jonah's distance, this was probably... I mean, one has to think, what am I going to do? What is going to happen? And yet the whole city flips. I mean, what's funny is the phrase, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. (laughs) Nineveh overturns and won. Regardless of what may or may not have happened, here's the deal. God does not send his children on aimless tasks and fool's errands simply because he's interested in what they might do. Jonah is not on like a science experiment for the Lord. This is not about Jonah. This is about God's kingdom and wickedness in the world and God calling a wicked people to repentance. That's what this is about. God's not sending him on a fool's errand. When God uses us, we need to appreciate it is always bigger than we are. We are being braided into his kingdom's purpose, and that is more precious than gold, to be threaded into his fabric. But you're being brought into something so big, it is, and it will not return void because it's God at work. I think in our time, and particularly my generation, there has been this wonderful comfort with finding out God's story in your life. Like, what is God's story for you? I, I just think we need a healthy corrective and say, you know, how about we figure out God's story and be part of it? We don't need to validate the Lord by figuring out the part and the role that he's written for us. We need to submit and play into his big picture. How can you have imagined that this would happen? I mean, if you were Jonah, this... I mean, we'll find out he feared something like this might happen. Why? Because he knows that God does not send one of his children on a fool's errand. God wastes nothing, especially his children. In the Great Commission, the Lord says, go make disciples of all nations. That tells me that to the uttermost parts of this earth are people waiting to repent. Unexpectedly. Maybe in measure that we would never imagine. Here's another question. How do they know that repentance would save them from God's judgment? I mean, Jonah doesn't preach repentance. Jonah preaches judgment. As best as I can see, 
40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Doesn't sound like... Does not sound like John the Baptist. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I would assume there'd be... Here's one thought. Why would God send a messenger if there was not hope? Right? It, I mean, it's um, like, I got the airplane. I mean, if he's going to destroy it, just destroy it. Why send a messenger? The fact that God sent, I mean, we should hear this, right? Because for God so loved the world that he sent his son. <laughs> that, the sending is a sign of hope. The very notion of Jesus Christ getting off his throne, condescending his nature and plummeting to the earth is a sign of hope. I mean, that's why Christmas is worth celebrating in some ways, because the incarnation of Christ is this bright sign of hope. The people crawling in darkness have seen a great light. Like, already we know that. So the presence of a prophet, of the Most High God in a distant city, is reason to possibly hope. And then the duration of 40 days. Why do that? I mean, if you are God and you're really going to smite them, all 40 days is going to do is scatter them to other towns. It makes smiting far more complex. Like, just get them when they're all concentrated. I mean, obviously that's not God's intent. I'm sending you a prophet and I'm giving you time. What do you think you're going to do? This is what you've been given. God has sent his son, and you've been given your life, the span of your life, to decide who you will follow. Because there's a greater overturning coming, far greater than a city, right? It's an eternal turning over of who you are and who you're associated with. And to be honest, they don't know that their repentance will warrant them salvation. I mean, the king himself says in the ninth verse, he says, who knows? Let's try repentance. And he's, who knows? Maybe the only thing we can do... Now, by the way, note that the king doesn't reject the, the accusation of evil. What evil? Is you know, you know what you did. If we're all going to be genuinely honest with ourselves, the kind of repentance God's calling us about doesn't need some severe investigation of the darkest corners. We know. But he says, who knows? Now, I want to be careful here. This may sound to some like a teaching moment, but um, you know, I, I find never pass up an opportunity to be really clear about how salvation works. Okay? In this account, even the mystery of the king, who knows? Maybe it'll work. It's important to note, repentance does not earn God's forgiveness. Okay? Repentance does not do the work of atoning for your sin, of, of paying for your sin. It doesn't do it. You know who does the work of paying for your sin? Jesus Christ does the work of paying for your sin. Right? The better we understand the gospel, then the better we know where to place praise and worship. Right? Jesus paid for our sins. That's what pays. When we repent, God accepts us into that payment. 
This is why the king doesn't even know. It's because God has no obligation. You know, you have a child who disobeys. You say, okay, you're grounded. And the child says, well, I'm sorry, I disobeyed. And you say, I understand you're sorry, but you're still grounded. You ever had the kid who goes, but wait a second. I said, I'm sorry. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh. But we have rules in the house, and we have an order in the house, and our home is a community that has preserved by rules in large part, so you're still grounded. And then, But wait, I thought I said, I'm, I'm sorry does not atone for the error. I'm sorry is necessary for reconciliation, but Jesus Christ atones for the error. And you see this, you see kind of this idea halfway exposed here of the king knowing, the king knowing we could say we're sorry all we want all day long and this God doesn't have to forgive us for the evil we've already done. But, I mean, this is the beauty of it, right? But let's try because verse 10, when God saw what they did, he relented. I mean, I mean, this ultimately ends in such beautiful news. I mean, God, God gives has so much compassion that he's gone so far as to tell us if we repent and rely on Jesus Christ, he will forgive us our sins. Let me close with this thought. Here's a town in the city. I don't presume that Nineveh repented in the sort of way that, that in some complete great awakening, come to Jesus, build a relationship with the Lord that lasts generations and generations. I don't think that's the, I don't think we're led to expect that or believe that. I think they feared judgment. They repented of their evil, right? That's what they repented of. They're evil. But I don't think that there were, they started going to church, um, saying in choirs, Right. I don't see that. An interesting thing as a note is the personal name of God, which is Yahweh, which in your Bible is probably described by capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name of God that the, when the Lord speaks to Jonah, it's Yahweh. The moment you get to the Nineveh, it's a generic word for God. It's Elohim. It's just God. It's, like, it's not as though they actually got to know the Lord. Is they feared judgment and they responded, okay? What I want to say is, is, here's the people who barely know God, barely know God, they believe and they repent and they, they're saved. Yet we know so much more about God. I mean, they have one paragraph. They have a, a marginal prophet with a pretty abridged message and a more abridged spirit about the message, giving it to them, and yet they repent. We have over a thousand pages of God's description of himself and his love for us. We have a clear delineation of the nature of God in our lives, his desire for us to turn, the great riches and glory of his salvation. We have all of this available to us right now. Have you repented? That's the question. I'm not asking you, do you go to church? I'm asking, have you repented? Notice the king, he gets off his throne, he removes his robes, he puts on sackcloth, he decrees a fast for man and beast in the city. He sits in ashes. And what does the Lord see? Look in the 10 first. Does the Lord see all of that? See, I have this glory. My page has to turn on 10, so it's like a cliffhanger. I have, when God saw what they did, karma, 
What's going to happen? They turned from their evil way, is what it says. When it says what they did, it doesn't say that they took off their robes and got in sackcloth and sat in ashes and fasted for a day. It's not what God sees, okay? God has seen plenty of fake fast in his life, in our life. God has seen hollow words sent up to him. God has seen insincere religion since the dawn of religion. God sees repentance from our evil ways and relents. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's a description of the Pharisees and the teachers and scribes of the law, and they're, they're hounding Jesus. They're hounding him. You know, they can never get enough because they want what he's not willing to give them. So they keep looking, show us another sign, show us another sign. We want to see a sign from you, as though it wasn't enough that he healed there or fed there, but they want to see another one from him to which he calls them an evil and adulterous generation, right? A generation, here's the most religious in their community, a generation where they ought to know the God who they should worship. They're staring him in the face and yet they don't do it. All right? He says, you evil and adulterous generation, I'm not giving you another sign. One more sign, and it's the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. That's what you're getting from me. In other words, my death and resurrection will stand by itself as your sign. You must, you have to decide what you do with that. And then he says this to them. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the proclaiming of Jonah and behold, someone greater than Jonah is among you. And, you know, you're here. So I'm not going to ask you if you're religious. I'm not going to ask you if you like the idea of God. I'm going to ask you that if God looks down and sees you, will he see someone who's turned from their evil ways? I don't mean that you never mess up again. I mean, we have the testimony of Jonah here. God's merciful. You don't have to do everything right. We already see in this tiny story how God chases after his disobedient yet followers and, and brings them in and sets them back up. I'm asking, is your heart bending back to God? That's what I'm asking. Because the sackcloth and the ashes, God will not see that at the end of the day. He wants to know, did you turn? Did you turn to him? And then he will relent. Let's pray, Lord. We know even from the symbol of baptism that you wash our sins away. You save us from them. Lord, and I know that in this room there's many, many, many people who follow you, who want to be more like you, Lord. I pray, I pray for among us that we would be drawn in to deeper obedience. If only, Lord, so that if you were to call on us, you would not have to ask to see it done again. May we be faithful the first time. 
But Lord, also for those here who don't know what to do about religion, I pray that you just speak to them, that you see through all of that, you see to their hearts, and you're looking for people to turn to you, call you Lord, follow after you, seek to make you king, pursue a life that is submissive to a holy God, own your scriptures true, Rely on Christ in his work. Go to the Spirit for forgiveness, Lord. These are the things you want of us day in and day out. These are the marvelous things of the saints that make us your children. Lord, I pray that we would be drawn to the real things. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.